This is Out of Our Minds. I'm Nathan Alberson. I'll be joined by Pastors Jake Menzel and Tim Bailey. Before we get to that, though, you should go to NewGenevaAcademy.com. New Geneva Academy partners with the local church to equip men called to the pastorate and eldership and to help local church leadership implement a faithful vision for church growth. What does that mean? It means New Geneva is an academy that trains pastors instead of having a guy go off to a highfalutin seminary where he's going to pay thousands and thousands of dollars. What New Geneva does is actually partner with the local church so that essentially he's being mentored by his own shepherds so that he can become a shepherd. But he's also getting a rigorous education and the knowledge and the skills and the things he needs as he does that. So there's a distance component, there's a local component, and it's all designed to train the next generation of pastors for historically reformed churches to really have what they need to love and to serve and to shepherd real people and to be pastors of Christ's bride. So that is the goal of New Geneva Academy. Check us out once again at newgenevaacademy.com. So the question I want to start with today is, is it possible to understand sin and have hope? Obviously, the answer is yes. But in practice, I I see a a few categories of people. I, I see Reformed Christians who... Like they get the doctrine of depravity and they have cultivated a big view of their own sin and then they feel defeated by it because they see their own sin everywhere and they have no hope. So that's one type of person. Then you have like kind of the reformed, young, triumphalist dudes who acknowledge sin theoretically, but they don't really let it touch them. A lot of post-mill guys in general kind of act like, everything's great for me, everything's great in my family, in my personal life, even if they would acknowledge in theory that they have indwelling sin. So it's like they, they have a doctrine of sin, but it doesn't touch them. And then, of course, the third category, you've got like the Tim Keller Gospel Coalition School of, we all just need healing and grace. Your choices are real sin, real depression, theoretical sin, but no actual sin, just victory. And win some grace, Tim Keller type stuff. So how do we navigate this? Maybe the simplest way to ask the question after all that is, can we have a real understanding of our sin and also have real hope? I would say another way to ask the question is, does reading Romans 1 and 2 and 3 give you hope? And the answer is always. Why? In fact, nothing gives me more hope than reading Romans 1, 2, and 3. And it's, it's because you live your life constantly tempted to be propped up by the idea that you're not a real sinner, and therefore you have a righteousness that you can trust in. And the minute that the Apostle Paul takes and cuts your legs out from underneath you, then you have to fall on Jesus. There's nothing else left, and that's where you find hope. And so the minute you go into the reality of depravity and have to face the fact that you're not a fake sinner or a pretend sinner, but you're a real sinner— you're not a faux sinner, you're not an almost sinner, you're a sinner sinner. Then you've got nowhere else to turn and you find that you've been trusting in yourself, you've been trusting in your righteousness, you've been trusting in a thousand little props, a thousand little crutches that now have been kicked out from under you. And you fall on Jesus and then there you find solid footing for the first time. The counterfeit in reform preaching has been, you're much worse than you ever thought you were. 
and God's grace is much greater than you could ever dream. That's Keller, Redeemer, Covenant, Gospel Coalition. That's all of this stuff. So what I heard you just saying is exactly what they would say they mean by that. But they're short-circuiting Romans 1. They're putting a platitude over the top of it so that you never have to deal with the reality inside your own heart. But they would say everybody knows they're a sinner. What they need is healing and faith and grace. And see, this is what, are you sure when you said the Reformed Christian who knows what sin is and is depressed has no hope? And I'm not sure I'm buying that. I'm not sure that there's anyone who knows what sin is who has no hope. I know that sounds crazy. So somebody's going to say, well, what about Judas? Judas knew what sin was. He took the money back. He threw it. They bought the field. He went and he hung himself. Isn't that a man who knows what sin is and has no hope? So now I'm arguing against myself, but let's deal with this because the counterfeit is so close to what we're saying we get from reading Romans 1 to 3. Okay, so the cheap way to do this is to substitute the grace of God. So you have cheap grace. And on the other side, you have, I don't want cheap grace. What I'm going to do is I'm going to substitute the grace of God for a cathartic experience of understanding my own sin and depravity. So it then becomes about, well, if I can just dwell around in this little bit of muck here and get a little bit of catharsis without actually having to fully deal with my sin and fully turn to Jesus and have hope that I can be changed and transformed. What's the real definition of catharsis? Release. From what? From the pressure and tension. That what? The emotions that we repress. Well, isn't it? To have a catharsis, don't you really have to be down in a hole? And isn't that what plays and movies and novels set up, is they take you down and then lift you up, yeah, give you healing for the disease that they've given you? Or if you want to just do straight up Aristotelian catharsis, they actually don't bring you back up. You just They want give to you see, an avatar. You just uh, want to yeah. see the tragedy. You want to see the king die. That is the end of the story. Your emotions have been released. You feel better. The character's dead. You're processing something else inside of you through this out here without ever actually dealing with the real thing. And then there's no actual redemption. Yeah. It's just the release of the emotion. That Well, when I said heal, I think that's what I meant. I think I meant the release. Right. Yeah. But now let's go and look at what actually are we released from if gentle and lowly is our catharsis. Because I think gentle and lowly is a perfect placeholder for the cheap grace, the false gospel, all the catharsis of conversion, of learning to say the word sovereign, providence. I think it's a good placeholder. And you talk about catharsis. I'm not sure that in the church today, anybody gets a real catharsis. I'm not sure that anybody has their emotional release. I think that what they get is a false catharsis, where there is some additional scar tissue added to their seared conscience. I'm not sure I see people that are the market for books like Gentle and Lowly and Gospel Coalition. I'm not sure I ever see them admitting their sin and crying over it and seeing the destruction it's caused in their children. And seeing how 
wicked they are in their treatment of their wives. And so I'm wondering, you say it's a catharsis. What kind of catharsis is it? So let me just tell you the places where I do see this sort of thing. What you see is, you see this sort of thing in uh, an accountability group of men. Everybody will get together and they feel a ton of pressure in their lives. And they'll all confess suddenly that they're all addicted to pornography and they'll all feel really bad about it. And their whole accountability group will then be about confessing every week, feeling very manly and very good and very sad about the fact that they're all still addicted to pornography and they're all confessing it every week. And now they feel like they're really being honest with their sin and dealing with their sin by every week coming back and confessing that they're addicted to pornography. And then the whole group becomes not about actually repenting of pornography, which is not to say that you don't continue to struggle, but it becomes about the feeling bad together about our addiction to pornography and feeling like that's a step that's good enough. Would you call that a catharsis? Yeah, well, that's I what I, that's what I, I mean. You're right. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. It's catharsis because it's a release of that feeling. Yeah, okay, I've kept yeah. it in and now I feel bad and we feel bad about it together, but we don't get beyond feeling bad about it. We think feeling bad about it, feeling sufficiently bad about it is good enough but I, without ever taking the steps required to repent and grow past it and to deal with that sin and to have hope that there's power in Christ to overcome it in time and that we can work on that together as brothers. When I think of catharsis, what I think of is what I gave myself to, which was horror movies. And the horror movies of the 80s and 90s were slasher movies where a guy with a knife would stab promiscuous teenagers. That was just what you were seeing over and over and over and over and over again. And I think there was a whole generation that I'm a part of that just loved the blood, the actual blood catharsis of watching a sinner get butchered. And you'd go and you'd watch it for 90 minutes and you'd cheer. And it's a very weird thing to be a part of. But it's like the sacrificial system of old where you feel like here on screen, I'm participating in the lamb being slaughtered for my sins. Right. This promiscuous woman is getting butchered and I am sexually broken and depraved too. And so I'm participating mm. in this sacrifice. Mm. And I see that this is the judgment and justice that my, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that sin deserves. Okay, now I'm understanding. So now I have a question. Yeah. Would you please define the difference between catharsis and conversion? Yeah, I think Scripture defines it. There's a worldly sorrow that leads to death and a godly sorrow that leads to repentance in life. And so there's two types of sorrow when you're faced with and confronted with, with sin. And one is entirely inward focused, and it's Judas. One drives you to God because you have nowhere else to go, and that's Peter. They both betrayed Jesus. They both betrayed him, and they both had to face it. And Judas was driven inward, and it was a worldly sorrow, and he hung himself. And Peter, just like before, where else do I go? What else? What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed you to go? You know I love you. Oh, Lord, you know I love you. And so he you. just keeps coming back. He just keeps coming back. Because it's not about him. It's not With about Judas, him. it's completely... It's all about Judas. Judas sees what the manosphere is going to do to him. And so he's just going to kill himself. Because that's what men without chests do. And Peter, it's just not about Peter. It's just, what am I supposed to do yeah. and where do I go? Peter and lives that's, out loud. And that's repentance. 
and, and change and transformation. And, and then faith. you see the evidence of all of that in Peter's life yeah, moving yeah, forward, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why Jesus says to Peter, when you're old, you'll be taken by the hand, you'll be led to death. And that's what Peter does. He lives as a slave of Christ moving forward. The man who stands up at Pentecost is the same man who is different and who is transformed, who has been changed. And there's hope in that kind of sorrow. And you can say, well, that's the real catharsis, and it is. But when I say the false gospel of catharsis, that worldly sorrow where you feel bad, and it's completely narcissistic, it's completely inward focused, it has nothing to do with the hope that's held out in Christ. It does not drive you to God, and it doesn't drive you to real repentance. It's really tempting when you're repenting of cheap grace to repent into that, but the flip sides are the same coin. I think that the difference between catharsis, in a word, the difference between catharsis and conversion is faith. Yeah. It's hope. Catharsis is not faith and hope, or I suppose it could be. I suppose you could refer to a conversion as a catharsis, but it has too much of the element of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas conversion never happens without loving God and having faith that he will change you. Yeah, And that's the thing that really gets me about these accountability groups. I said to Mary Lee recently that when somebody says to somebody else or to me that they want me to hold them accountable, I just say, no, you don't. I don't actually say that to them. But I say to my wife, I say, the one way you know somebody doesn't want to be accountable is because they ask you to hold them accountable. What they don't want is to actually deal with themselves. They want somebody to blame and somebody to have carry the responsibility that they should be carrying and the catharsis for themselves. That you're and the out. yes, and the yeah. catharsis yeah. of you telling them yeah. and making them feel bad. What they want is to feel whipped and feel bad without actually having to change and feel like they're actually doing something. And that's where the struggle that we have and that we're fighting our way forward with in our church is how do we genuinely help men? How do we help them see their sin? and feel the weight of their sin without just wanting to stop there and think that's good enough, but to actually then have hope to turn to Jesus and to commit themselves to changing and growing in the ways they need to change and grow. And The way I would say it is by preaching to their conscience and exposing their sin to them. That's what I would say. Because it's an act of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what God led me to do in my preaching. And every week I had this elder who would tell me that I was discouraging the people and that I was the best lover of the sheep that he'd ever known, but that people just need to be encouraged. That's what he would say over every week, year after year. Tim, people need to be encouraged. People just need to be encouraged. And do you remember what I said? I said that every time he said that, trying to get me to change my preaching so it was gentle and lowly, I would always think of one person. Do you remember? It was always your mother, Nate, because I would see her face year by year becoming more beautiful and more beautiful. And it was because, I was always convinced, it was because I was a realist. And she had had so much of gunk. And she just loved to to be reminded that she was hopeless. And it's not because she was masochistic. It was because it made her love Jesus more. And this is the thing I can't get across to people. If you read things today, you're never going to know it. But if you'll read Calvin's sermons and read the prayers at the end of every sermon, where he will say, oh, Lord, thank you for showing us again how miserable sinners we are 
and we fall before you, and we acknowledge that you are right and true, and we are not. And oh, Lord, would you keep opening our eyes to this, and we will give you all the glory. And it's like, you couldn't define anything that's more contrary to the Reformed world today. I wonder if these guys have ever read one of his prayers, and they're all the same at the end of his sermons. And isn't it true? Yeah. I don't know. I often feel watching a movie that there's more truth in movies than there is in the church, because movies take sin seriously. And I'm not talking about purient. I'm not talking about salacious. I'm not talking about skin. I'm talking about I don't know if I've ever told you this, but the height of my movie going. Have I told you this? I don't know what the name of the movie is. Oh, my goodness. What was the name of that movie? I don't know what the name. All I remember is it's a movie set in the South, the Deep South. I don't find the North interesting, and I don't find California interesting. If I'm going to watch anything made in America, it's going to be about the South. And this was a movie set in the South. I probably watched it 25 years ago. So it's a racial conflict. And poor and rich and everything. But at the end of the movie, there's a scene where they're all serve communion together at the front of the church. And to me, it was one of the most inspiring scenes I've ever had in my life. And I remember coming to Bloomington and going to a performance of St. Matthew's Passion and realizing how many bisexual women and guys, because you know the music school, you know the Mm -hmm. sexual perversion that's endemic in the music school. And just seeing these people sing the words of Scripture about our Lord's passion and feeling like, I'm sorry, but feeling like this is more true than the choir in Sunday morning worship. If we read these things and we talk about these things and we have these weights of pastoral care in our churches, Nathan, you, Jake, and people were to think that we talk the way we talk because we're depressed, our wives are unhappy, our children don't have fun, and our people pay us to reduce them to the pit of despair. Don't you think that's what a lot of people think about our families and our marriages and our life and our churches? I don't know. I you know if I, I, I listened to even, this, I'd think that. My visceral response to that is, that I don't even care. I don't care what they think. We have like, a lot I, of fun. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't care. What I care about is loving my family and my people and being helpful to the people that want to be helped. And if you want to make judgments about us or our families instead of be helped, then this isn't for you. And yeah, that's how I, that's I, think, how I feel. That's I think my what, reaction. To I think even, what I want to do is be an advocate for the fact that it's men like this that take sin seriously and preach the wickedness of sin that also are men who take faith seriously and preach holiness and grace seriously, who have children that look in their eyes and adore them. And so don't think that if you take sin seriously that you won't have the happiness of Wheaton, which is a joke, because the happiness of Wheaton is a very, very sterile and light happiness. It consists mostly of Interior design, haircuts, clothing, classical music, beautiful churches, beautiful sermons, pulpiteers, and I know Wheaton. I was just there a couple days ago for a funeral, actually. And so don't think that you have to stay away from the preaching of sin if you're not going to be depressed. That's why I'm still surfing off you saying there are people who understand sin Mm -hmm. and are depressed and have no hope. I'm not convinced 
that anybody who really understands sin, I don't know, I'm, I want to say can be without hope. It seems to me that when God opens our eyes to our sin, there's always hope because God shows us that he is our answer. Maybe one thing I'm saying, another way to say it is when Jake talks about he just wants to do the work, who cares what the outsiders think? There's two judgments that outsiders make, and they're equal and opposite, and they're stupid. And one is that there's a whole bunch of miserable people who think that Jake's way too positive, and there's a whole bunch of shallow people who think Jake's way too negative. And it's hilarious how those are the two criticisms that you go through life getting from outsiders who know nothing when you're just doing the work of loving the sheep. I mean, I've seen you get the same two criticisms your whole life, and people might think the only criticism that Tim Bailey ever gets is that he's too negative, he's too strong, he's too whatever. But actually, there's a whole class of people out there that, why are you going so easy on this? I came back from Germany and preached at a church, one of our churches, and immediately this young buck, they called him Young Turks in the Russian Revolution times, and he's just like all over me that I have no principles and I'm old and weak. And that's why I said such and such on a podcast. Yep. And I'm like, yeah, that's what everybody tells me. And we mm -hmm. came to Evansville and we wanted to have compassion on people who'd never had any kind of sexual ethic. And so you have people out there that are like, oh, are you ever going to preach biblical sexuality? <laughs> and then on the other hand, you have people like biblical sexuality. That's scary. You monsters. It, uh, it's just the irony. And you get both. And mostly it's people actually trying to position themselves in relation to you. I'm a little bit right or a little bit left. I'm a little bit right of you and I'm a little bit left of you. And it's all about positioning themselves and posturing themselves instead of actually loving their own flock. And that's how you know that they're false shepherds. Just like they just what's motivating them in their criticism of you and in how they preach and how they shepherd their flock is not their love of their people or their love of God. It's simply posturing and positioning, and that's it. And so they're just trying to find people to posture and position themselves between. Because nothing what, to do. Because nothing what they care do. about is numbers and money. They care about numbers. They care about money. They care about status. They care about perception. Mm -hmm. It's vanity. It's ego. It's pride. It's money. It's everything but actually shepherding and loving the people of God and being faithful to Jesus. Yeah, I often think about... <laughs> Why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? And right. so John the Baptist came, and then Jesus came, and John the Baptist wasn't, and Jesus isn't. And John was an ascetic, and Jesus was a libertine, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. any hammer is good enough to beat somebody who actually is loving and shepherding right. and caring for and, and when the is Jesus flock gonna and exposing save your sin and your unfaithfulness in the process. When is Jesus going to save the poor, and when is he going to overthrow the tyrants? Yep. One of the things that if you're listening and you're saying, oh my goodness, so how do I know whether or not this pastor is good or not? And how do I know who I can trust in leadership? Because obviously you can't listen to these podcasts without realizing that we have a completely different understanding of the duties of pastors and elders than people are used to, if I can put it that way. And I would say that one of the things that lets you know who you should trust is look at the men that are friends with your pastor, okay? And then look at how long they've known them. 
and look at whether or not there is affection and depth to the relationship that he has with those men. <laughs> because stuffed shirts and men without chests are incapable of true friendships with other men. And so if your pastor is in the green room before the conference podium, you know what I'm talking about, the green room, will everybody mm -hmm. understand that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And you go in that room and you listen to the talk going down between the speakers. And I won't name the names, but having been there, it is almost a necessity to be a stuffed shirt that everybody knows his name, that he has no intimacy with other men. You go in there and you listen to what these men, now they can get out on the platform and sit in easy chairs and, and talk to each other. And it can appear that they're friends and that they have some relationship with each other. But none of these guys ever have any friends. And if you look at them, what happens is they throw away and throw away and throw away the men that they're working with. And so you look at the inability of certain heroes of ours, and then you look at David and Jonathan. I mean, think of the chasm between them. And then you look at Jonathan and his father and the song that David writes at the end when they die about the closeness of Jonathan and his father. And then you look at the ability of Paul to rebuke Peter. Peter's supposedly the first pope, and Paul rebukes him publicly. And then you look at the division between Paul and Barnabas mm -hmm. over John Mark. And if you want to know whether you can trust your pastor, one way is to listen to his sermons and see whether he gives you hope by preaching honestly about his own and your sin. Another way is to look at his friendships and look at his relationship with his wife. If his relationship with his wife stands up to scrutiny, he's not a good pastor because there's, no, <laughs> there's nobody who is in a marriage and he knows he's a sinner and his wife knows he's a sinner and he knows his wife is a sinner who has an easy marriage that looks good to everybody that looks at it. Am I right or am I wrong? His relationships are real and deep. Right. And that means they're lived out loud. And that means that there's conflict. And the reason there's conflict is because there's calibration, because you care. You care about the relationship. And so it's just like things happen. Things are what they are. And Look at Jesus' relationship with his disciples. Look at it. Oh, my goodness. It hadn't occurred to me until this last week. But the very fact that Jesus is getting ticked at them so often. Oh, you of little faith. We just read that as if it's like a bond that he lets them eat. Yeah. They lived together for three years. They lived and worked together for three years. And that's what occurred to me for the first time preaching a series on Jesus. One of the things people say, all the little sort of proofs or whatever, would these men have gone and died for, for Jesus if he didn't really rise from the dead, all that sort of thing. One of the things that I noticed for the first time just in the last year was that whole exchange, who do people say that I am, was towards the end of Jesus's ministry. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say? And who do you say that I? Who do you say that I am? Well, these men have lived together for three years, and Peter responds, "You're the Son of God." <laughs> That's after living with a man for three years, <laughs> eating together, sleeping, you know, in the same places, traveling, and his answer is, "You're the Christ. You're the Son of the Living God." And I mean, right after that, what happens? 
Is that get behind me, Satan? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it goes directly into <laughs> takes him aside, yeah. yeah. Because Jesus yeah. all of a sudden wasn't uplifting. <laughs> he yeah. was having a negative confession. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to kill me. Oh, may it never be. Can I go back and deal with the issue of pornography since we brought that up? No. And I want to make the point that we've made earlier, which is the key to repenting of pornography is not self-discipline. Now, I know people are going to be scandalized by that. And so let me say a little bit different. The key to avoiding pornography is the self-discipline of loving your wife. Yeah, it's positive. When you think of what this does to your wife, looking at another woman's naked flesh, when you think what this does to your future wife, that you might be on your honeymoon and as some of the men in our churches and not able to be pleased by your wife as easily as you are able to please yourself. When you think what this does to the women you are looking at, who are somebody's precious daughter, okay? Love is the solution to pornography. And the discipline, the self-discipline you need, discipline yourself to love your wife. We're not saying don't be in accountability groups, but it would be maybe better for the accountability groups to not talk about looking at pornography and to talk about how they have loved their present or future wife this week, how they've prepared themselves to be a good husband to their yeah. future wife, how they've gone out on dates with their wife, how they've had a new realization of the pain they caused their wife by the way they live. Are you with me? Oh, yeah. I, when I think about my life, it would be barely an exaggeration to say, I have never said no to a single sin. I have said yes to Jesus, to my wife, to the church, and that is how God has dealt with my sins. But mm -hmm. I can count on one hand the number of times where I've, oh, I feel like sinning and I shall stand against it. <laughs> it I'm not saying that's a good thing about me, but it is just simply true that I must be aiming at something that I love and it must be relational. And it cannot just be rote self-discipline. It does yeah. not and has never worked. And when I have tried it, it has been a miserable, catastrophic it, failure. And that's why we say conversion, not catharsis. Yeah. You can't simply say no. You have to positively pursue love and righteousness and holiness. You have to. You, you have remember to. my story about Gandhi? It was in an article that was passed out in my philosophy class at UW-Madison. Chairman of the department was teaching a class called Environmental Ethics. It was a 400-level class. He taught it Socratically, three huge blackboards, question, answer, question, answer, question, question, question. Actually, not the answers, just the questions. And he'd write it out beforehand. And he had us read this article called, if I remember correctly, it was called Voluntary Simplicity. Mm -hmm. And it was an article about our infatuation with growth, with success, with all these so-called values of the Western world. Well, one of the things that the author talked about was how he loved books, and he had this huge collection of books. Do you remember this story? Yeah. And he went over to see Gandhi and meet him. And so he was with Gandhi, and Gandhi was talking about simplicity. Gandhi got done, and he looked at Gandhi, and he said, I have so many books. What should I do about my books? And Gandhi said, well, don't try to engage yourself in guilt and sacrifice about how many books you have. 
He said, what you have to do is displace your books with a larger love, okay? Gandhi was not a Christian. Yeah. But isn't this a Christian truth that we know because we have seen Jesus? Yeah. Well, I was preaching just this past Sunday. I'm in Romans 6 now. And so you hit the passage where Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. And so that's always how we see things in scripture. Consider yourself dead, crucified with Christ and alive with Christ so that you can walk in newness of life. How do you kill sin? You consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. How do you stop presenting your, your eyes or your hands to unrighteousness? You present your hands and your eyes mm. to God as instruments for righteousness. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. You have to be committed. And that's why we say conversion, not catharsis. Mm -hmm. And if you have no desire and no will, no love for God, no hatred for your sin, you must be born again. And that's not to say that there's no struggle, that there's no pain, that you don't come to Romans 7 and mm -hmm. say, why do I do the things that I hate? It's just to say there is a deeper desire because Jesus has changed you and you are a new creation. And what was old has passed away. And you must then therefore not believe the lie that sin reigns, but that grace reigns. And you must not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. You must present them as instruments to God for righteousness. I would say, by the way, that since I mentioned horror movies earlier, this was how I came to be done with horror movies. And it was very specific. I read Psalm 18 and it talks about God being shrouded in darkness and then him coming out of the sky and saving David with all this fearsome power. It just hit me with a flash. Oh, I love scary stuff. I want to love something that's bigger than me, something that's supernatural and something that's scary. And so I read like vampire novels, but actually God mm. is scary and I love him. And that's <laughs> where I go for my, that's my beautiful. supernatural fear. That's beautiful. And the original superhero. Yeah. <laughs> he is the original superhero. He's also, mm -hmm. I almost want to say the original I don't Empire. Wanna, yeah, the original monster or something like that, because mm -hmm. that is his wrath against sin. It is, hell is horrible, and his wrath is, and I actually love these things about him. And people, for years, people like yourself would say, Nathan, be done with horror movies. I was never able to take my eyes off of them until I had something to look at, and it had to be mm -hmm. something that actually was bigger and visceral and real and fearful in a way. So, Real judgment. Real judgment. Real justice. Real justice. Far more horrifying. Far more horrifying and loving and fatherly and good. And it's just, it's like I couldn't be done with the perversion until I had the wholesome, the thing. The hugeness of God yeah. in Scripture. And it just hits you every time you open the Bible that God is not anything like a trite reform sermon or anything that we tend to read and write and market and sell today. And his justice? Oh, my goodness. I've just gotten done reading the life of Saul. And who? The Bible actually says God changed him. The Holy Spirit changed him. You remember that at the beginning when he's anointed to be the king? And then you run into him doing the sacrifice and then him keeping Agag alive. Yeah. 
And then what's the sound of bleeding I hear? Oh, well, the people. Blaming it on the people, just like Aaron, right? Yep. And I'm reading this, and this is God's book. And I'm thinking, if God changed him and gave him the spirit, why did God fail him? Because it's a horrible tragedy. Mm. In the end, he's ready to kill his son. This is our God. I remember going to Africa for the first time when I came back. I hit America, and on one hand, I loved being American because I had the right passport. And boy, do you feel that after the indignities of going from country to country in Africa. You feel the weight of passports. And so there were some things about America that were actually pretty nice. But then you get back home, and you realize that life in America is so unutterably light, whereas life in Africa is weighty, glorious. Because nobody's trying, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but there is death, and they actually hold the funeral when you die, and they actually bury the bodies, and people are actually wicked, and there is sin in the church, and there is poverty, and there is wealth, and there is the mafia boss, Mobutu, and there, in other words, in Africa, nothing is modulated and packaged. Everything's straight. And so I came back to America, and I just felt the poverty of us today. It makes you wonder whether there may not be something about Eastern Orthodoxy. I've had Eastern Orthodoxy actually in the back of my mind, Yeah, this whole conversation, in part because Eastern Orthodoxy is, seems to be sweeping through the intelligent conservative mm -hmm, mm -hmm. world right now because of its masculinity, because of its straightforward understanding of sin and spiritual warfare and the fight, because of its sort of unapologetic historicity and probably just the otherliness. It's very interesting to say, having gone through Europe, and by the way, I have never gone through Europe. I'm not bragging. I'm 68 years old and I had What's this rotator cuff? And so don't think anything glamorous about us going through Europe, okay? But to me, it's clear. And I know people are going to argue with this. I don't care. Over my lifetime, my observation is that Roman Catholicism always effeminizes everything it touches, that it can't help but create gayness. Now, some people would say, no, it's just a result of the celibate priesthood and you remove men from the natural gift And the of Orthodox marriage. don't have that. Yeah. But what I would say is, listen, you compare the product of Orthodoxy, its connection to masculinity, yeah. to Rome, Mary versus icons. If you're going to have idolatry, I'll take icons any day over Mary. Well, even the chant. Have you listened to Orthodox chant as opposed to Gregorian chant? Roman Catholic chant is very harmonized, but there's like a rhythm and a beat and mm -hmm. a militancy to Orthodox chant. That's some of it will make your hair stand on end, mm. give you goosebumps. Like, whoa, I don't understand what they're saying, but this just feels virile. It is Orthodoxy. <laughs> Can we please remember the patriarchate, the patriarchy, the patriarch? That's the name as opposed to sacerdotal, patriarch sacerdotal. <laughs> the robes, the differences in clothing, the beards, yeah. can't separate beards from orthodoxy. Yeah. Now, listen, 
those of you that are listening, we don't follow doctrine according to aesthetics, okay? And there's no question that the Reformers were directly connected to the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers, and to the New Testament in a way that Roman Catholicism to this day isn't. Yep. And Eastern Orthodoxy also isn't. Right. All right? But we are commenting on the fact that Roman Catholicism's fruit has largely been a feminized, soft presentation, holy mother, full of grace, blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Mm -hmm. A rosary, the click-clack, clickety-clack of the rosary. And you go into any of these churches, any of the cathedrals, and it is so feminine. It's so Baroque. It's so Rococo. It's so, so, so. It almost reminds me of the four-part harmony singing of a lot of reform people now where they get together during the week and, and they practice so that they can have so, so, so music Sunday morning. And that's not biblical faith. That's not the fishermen. And that wasn't the singing at the time of the Reformation. It was a cacophony. And it was Rome that was precious in their presentation. Saying fishermen, Orthodox chant reminds me of sea shanties. Okay, yeah, yeah. With that same kind of that manful driving rhythm to it. Sorry to interrupt you. No, you weren't interrupting at all. I just think it's important to see the fruit of Orthodoxy as opposed to Roman Catholicism. Yeah. I'm concerned about people listening who uh, this makes Orthodoxy attractive, Eastern Orthodoxy. And I want to say one other thing about sacraments. What Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism have in common is a religious system that's perfectly in conformity to the Pharisees at the time of Christ in that they say we are the children of Abraham. And they call Gentiles the uncircumcised. And they were fixated on the outside of the cup. And so think of the distinction that Jesus and the prophets of the Old Testament make between a circumcised foreskin and a circumcised heart, all right? And if you will dwell on that distinction, which comes up again and again and again in Scripture, you will be warned away from Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, because both of them keep the people in the pews coming to them for the rites, for the icons, for the sacraments, without awakening the conscience to fall before God and to plead with him to circumcise our hearts. All right, so just keep this in mind, just because it's masculine. I mean, look, if you really want masculinity, as the manosphere will teach you, just become, I mean, honestly, just become Muslim. Which is what just happened with one of the leading luminaries of the manosphere. Really? Andrew Tate, if you know who he is. Well, I know the name. And he just converted to Islam. Yeah, Islam is exactly what you would expect Red Pill, MGTOW, all of those groups to go into because it's what swept through the prisons African-Americans yep. for decades. You think of Louis Farrakhan and all of his dudes with bow ties and they're bad to the bone. It's like gangs, and that's the way, that is the way that these homes are like. Get to know a woman who grows up in a Muslim home. 
get to know her and let alone the boys on the side. And so be very careful that masculinity does not become your idol. Masculinity exists for a purpose. And half of that purpose is femininity, that you are the husband, you are the father, that you raise your daughters, that you honor your mother. And when you get into these various systems that denigrate women or that worship them, which is, I would say, Roman Catholicism clearly worships the Virgin Mary, although they'll all blow their gaskets hearing me say that. Mm -hmm. But you go into any church, you look at the color systems of churches in Mexico, for instance, and the prominence of her statue and what she looks like. And would any boy want to play with that doll? (laughs) (laughs) So anyhow, just those words of caution, given the fact that we are talking about the good aspects of Eastern Orthodoxy. (laughs) 